Thank you, Paul. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and it's a particular honor to be a distinguished woman in science lecturer because I'm a lapsed scientist, and actually rather long-lapsed. I describe myself as a lapsed molecular biologist, and that really happened a long time ago. I thought I would explain what that's about a little bit. Um, I got my PhD in molecular biology, and um, for various reasons having to do with family, uh, gave up my research career really quite early and took a teaching job. And in my first teaching job, I was given a nutrition course to teach. Uh, and it was like falling in love, and I've never looked back. I really love food, and I love everything about it. And it was clear from that first class that you could teach, you could use food to teach biology in a way that was so immediate and so engrossing and so much more fun to do than teaching cell biology, which is what I had been teaching. Um, and also when I went to parties and told people I was a molecular biologist, their eyes glazed over. But if I told them I was teaching food and nutrition, I immediately heard about their most unusual dietary practices. And I thought it was kind of fun. And in my first class, I used the two books shown here. Uh, Diet for Small Planet and Food for People, Not for Profit, both of those linked science to public health in a way that really made sense to me. And today, I would, the kinds of things that I do as a university professor, I do research teaching and public service around issues having to do with food, nutrition, and public health. Uh, a lot of my work is spent in talking to the public about the link between science and politics. Um, and I write a blog and tweet and do all those things. And if you're going to do live tweeting on this, remember that I'm going to see what you write afterwards. Um, the um, politics of science is written about quite a lot. Uh, there have been conferences on conflicts of interest in science and on integrity of science. And this has, and usually that's about alcohol, cigarettes, or drugs, or some of the other things in which science runs into conflicts of interest. And only recently has uh, the issue of food and conflicts of interest in food come up. Um, but that's the area that I'm working in, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. The, I describe myself as somebody who works on food systems. And what I mean by food systems is the link between agriculture, food, nutrition, and public health. And from a scientific standpoint, the two most important public health problems that are facing the world today, public health nutrition problems that are facing the world today, are food insecurity and, on the one hand, obesity on the other, with roughly a billion people throughout the world in each category. And my particular angle on this is to look at the effect of food processing and marketing on both food insecurity and obesity. And I'll be talking a little bit about that and giving you some examples of the way that works. Let me talk first about food insecurity. I'm not going to say much about it, um, except to say that the United Nations Children Fund, UNICEF, has a framework for the causes of malnutrition that's very important in laying out how to think about problems of worldwide malnutrition. And the thing about this framework that is, uh, was revolutionary at the time it was developed 
was that it divides the causes of malnutrition into immediate underlying and basic, or what we in public health call root causes. And what's so interesting about it is that food, or the uh, absence of food and adequate dietary intake is only a very, very small part of that, this framework. Most of the framework is about politics. It's about the kind of political resources that are available, uh, the kind of economic resources that are available, ideological factors in society, education, uh, whether there's decent health care, and a whole lot of other factors that really have nothing immediately to do with food and yet determine very much whether people have adequate food or not. And this is best seen in what to do about world hunger science a couple of years ago, had this article about food security and the challenge of feeding 9 billion people. But I, I thought that was actually the wrong approach for this. They really ought to be talking about the challenge of getting 9 billion people to figure out how to feed themselves and do it in a, um, a way that's going to work. But if you want to do something about childhood malnutrition worldwide, what you want to do is you want to make sure that women are breastfeeding. You want to make sure there's clean water and safe food. You want women empowered and educated. You, have, you want to develop an agricultural system that's sustainable and not dependent on outside inputs. You've got to have some kind of in income equity, and you need a stable political system in order to make sure that all of this happens. These are social and political approaches to, um, to childhood malnutrition and malnutrition in general. They don't require technical solutions. They require social and political solutions. And for many people who are in the field, this seems very complicated. And I will come back to this later on when I talk about some of the technical solutions that are being used in place of the kind of social and political um, solutions that are needed. If you are going to uh, have adequate food, one of the things you need to do is to have prices that you can afford. And I thought I would show this cartoon of the current rise in the spike in food prices that has occurred recently. That's what that big fat line is that goes up there. And uh, th this diagram shows that the major factors that have that have affected the price of food throughout the world are, yes, the demand for food in the burgeoning populations of, in, and the, of populations in India and China where the economies are improving, but other things that, have, that seem to have nothing whatsoever to do with fuel, with food, like the use of corn to produce biofuels, the depreciation of the United States dollar, and speculation on food commodities as if they were widgets rather than something that people depended on for life have really had more to do with the price of food than just about anything else that, that you can think of or classic supply and demand that the economists always said was responsible for the price of food. And I've just read a very, very long and detailed analysis that links the higher food prices very, very closely to commodity speculation and biofuels, um, which you would never think ordinarily had anything to do with it. So that's really all I'm going to say about malnutrition for the moment until we talk about uh, what to do about it later on. And so I want to switch now uh, to the nutrition transition, which is uh, the transition from 
populations that don't have enough to eat to populations that have too much to eat and are gaining weight. And this phenomenon is so common in developing countries now that it's been given its own name, the nutrition transition. And in many third world populations, the number of people who are underweight and overweight and developing chronic diseases is roughly equivalent, putting enormous burdens on the healthcare systems of those countries. Now, for somebody interested in obesity, this is a thrilling time to be living in the United States um, because we have something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime, which is a first lady of the United States who's interested in the same kinds of things that I am. <laughs> um, and, you know, not going about it too badly either. Um, so Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, which is focused on childhood obesity, a very good target, and on food in schools and access to food in inner cities um, is really, has brought this issue to national attention and given it a prominence that uh, it never had before. Now, if you're going to do something about obesity, what you have to do is establish a better weight balance. Um, so here's the very complicated science of weight balance. It's a very, very simple equation. If your food intake is balanced with your energy expenditure, you're going to keep it the same weight. If you've got too much energy expenditure for the amount that you're eating, you're going to lose weight. And if you're eating too much, you're going to gain weight, with some individual variation. But everybody who overeats is going to gain weight. Um, the body weight is a result of both science and politics in the sense that Genetics and metabolic regulation of body weight, very complicated. In fact, metabolic regulation is so complicated that there's no point in even looking at that diagram because you can't understand it anyway. Um, but the food environment very, very much influences people's food choices. And that's where politics comes into it. So here again, we've got an intermingling of science and politics, as I will show you. Um, so politics is very simple. Eating less is really bad for business. Um, and we have a, a $60 billion a year diet industry in the United States, which um, is really amazing because there are all the advice that the diet gurus give is different, and there are lots of different approaches to losing weight, and each one argues that its approach is the best. And it's no wonder that the public is confused about what to eat. In fact, the public is so confused about what to eat that I wrote a whole book uh, in attempting to answer the question of what a reasonable diet is. It's not a diet book. It's a book about food issues. And people tell me that they've read it and said, I didn't know you weren't supposed to buy food products. I've lost weight. Amazing. And I think the confusion is unfortunate because the principles of diet are really simple. Eat less, move more, eat fruits and vegetables, substitute fruits and vegetables for other things you're eating. Don't eat too much junk food. Please enjoy what you're eating. It's one of life's greatest pleasures. And please don't eat my book. <laughs> and if it seems more complicated than that, I think it's because of the effect of this kind of advice on the food industry. I'll say it again, eating less is really bad for business. And this was beautifully expressed by an executive of Coca-Cola a few years ago who, met, who had this wonderful quotation in Advertising Age. Uh, the Achilles heel of the food industry is obesity. It's a huge global issue. 
It used to be they didn't have to pay any attention to it. They could just blame it on personal responsibility and bad character. Now everybody is looking at food companies as the source of some of the problems of obesity, and they're having to deal with it on a daily basis. They don't like it. And in order to understand all of this and why the food industry is hit so hard by this, it's necessary to go back in history and look at the beginning of the rise in level of obesity in this country, and that dates pretty precisely to the early 1980s. In the early, up until the early 1980s, rates of obesity were pretty level. Starting in the early 1980s, they started to go up very fast. So the question is, how come? What happened in the early 1980s that caused people either to move less or to eat more? Well, let me dispense with moving less very quickly. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this because the research on activity levels is, is if anything, worse than the research on dietary intake. But the research that we have says that, if anything, from the early 1980s until now, rates of physical activity have gone up a little tiny bit. Looking at it another way, rates of physical inactivity have gone down a little bit. Um, as, as I said, I don't want to push this too hard. Let's call it a wash and at least say that there's not very much evidence that rates of physical activity have changed since the early 1980s. On the other hand, there is plenty of evidence that people are eating more. Uh, and there are two main sources of information about that. One um, comes from data on the number of calories available in the food supply. In the early 1980s, it was 3,200 per capita. Um, per day, and that's the amount of calories produced in this country, less exports, plus imports, and it's per capita, which means men, women, little tiny babies. Um, <clears throat> now it's 3,900, an increase of 700. This isn't what people are actually eating, it's what's available. If you ask people what they're actually eating, they lie. Um, and what they say is that in the early 1980s, they ate an average of 1,900 calories a day, and now it's 2,100, an increase of 200 calories. The truth is someplace in between, and we don't know what it is. But there's no question that people are eating more, and here the question is, how come? And I think the, uh, oh, and this is uh, another way of looking at the 3,900 calorie a day figure. The pink bar across the middle, uh, is the number of calories available in the food supply starting in the early 1900s. The arrow points to the early 1980s when it started to go up quite precipitously. And even if it's wasted, which the Department of Agriculture says about 1,000 calories a day um, is wasted, it's still uh, much, much more than the country needs on average. So there's a big surplus of food, and that makes the food industry very competitive. Um, I think that the reason that people started to eat more beginning in the early 1980s had a great deal to do with deregulation. Um, and I think there are three kinds of deregulation that occurred at about that time that are relevant to this issue. The first was deregulation of agriculture, which actually started a few years earlier, where instead of paying farmers not to grow food, the agricultural um, system began to support farmers for growing as much food as they possibly could. And given that, that kind of incentive, the, uh, our farmers are very efficient. They began growing more and more 
for food, and the result was uh, mountains of corn and a sea of farm subsidies. The farm bill is up for renewal this year. It'll be interesting to see if they can get rid of some of that. Um, don't count on it. The uh, second area of deregulation also seems very remote from eating, and that's Wall Street. In 1981, Jack Welch, who was then the head of General Electric, gave a speech, a very um, influential speech, in which he said, enough of this blue chip stock stuff. Blue chip stocks, from, for those of you who've never heard of them, were stocks that used to give very slow return on investment over a very, very long period of time. They were considered safe. And what Welch said was, enough of that. Investors want higher and more immediate returns on investment. We want more money now. And Wall Street agreed. And the result of that was that Wall Street started evaluating corporations on their ability to meet growth targets. Now it wasn't enough for corporations to make money and make a profit for their shareholders. They now had to grow their, pro their profits every and report growth every 90 days. And for food companies who were already trying to sell food in an environment in which there was twice as much food available as anybody needed, now they not only had to sell food in that environment, but they had to, to, to sell more of it because they had to grow. And I think that put enormous pressure on food companies in particular to try to find ways to find new markets. And that's where the third kind of deregulation came in when President Reagan came in in 19... Um, in 1980, um, one of the first things that happened around that time was the deregulation of marketing to children on television so that the amount of time that television commercials could show became larger and there were some other things that also made it easier. And then over the next several years, there were also deregulatory effects of health claims, dietary supplements, and an enormous erosion in the authority and funding for the Food and Drug Administration. So all of this created a marketplace in which food companies were just desperate to sell. And in order to do that, they changed society in ways that were really not obvious unless you paid attention, and nobody was because it happened gradually. So the first thing that happened was that people started eating out more. Um, and these curves show uh, on top of the increase in the amount of money spent on food outside the home from 1980 um, to almost the present. Um, that was possible because of supply and demand. There was so much food, it was cheap. People could eat out more. And a lot of that was accounted for by fast food. Fast food and food outside the home has more calories than food prepared at home. Um, and that was one contributing factor. Um, another had to do with the introduction of large size portions. This complicated slide has three levels. The top level is what you've already seen, the rise in calories from 30, in the food supply from 3,200 to 3,900. The second curve is the rise in obesity in, uh, from the early 1980s to the present. And the bottom panel is the introduction of large size portions, which my doctoral student, Lisi Young, did her doctoral dissertation on, and here's Lisa um, at a talk on her uh, dissertation, and what she did was, she was to go out and measure 
the introduction of large portions into the food supply. The white cup on the left is an eight ounce Department of Agriculture serving size for a soft drink. If it doesn't have too much ice in it, it holds 100 calories worth of drink. The double gulp and the other cups on the, on the right of that, the double gulp, the big one, uh, she bought those cups at the Angelica Theater downtown. And if the double gulp doesn't have too much ice in it, it holds 64 ounces and 800 calories. And uh, you're buzzing about 800 <laughs> calories. That, you should be able to multiply it eight times 100. Um, and if you can't, it's because it's impossible to do that in any realistic way. And that has been shown beautifully by Brian Wensing, who's a professor at Cornell. And I'm showing here the results of his famous Super Bowl experiment, in which he invited his own students, who should have known better, to come to, to, come to his house and watch the Super Bowl. And he divided them up and put half of them in one room with two quart bowls of popcorn and the other in the other room with four quart bowls of snacks. And at the end of the Super Bowl, he counted up how much, how much snack they had eaten. And he discovered um, easily that the ones with the four quart bowls had eaten almost twice as many calories as those with the two quart bowls. And when he asked them how many calories they ate, they underestimated the amount that they were eating by a much larger fraction. So large portions do three things. First of all, large portions have more calories. If I had one thing that I would ask you to take away from this, it's that. <laughs> Uh, second, they uh, encourage people to eat more. And thirdly, they encourage people to uh, underestimate the amount they're eating. So large portions alone can account for obesity. They're also very, very difficult to work off. And that's shown here to compensate for 150 calories soda. You need to walk for an hour, two miles an hour, or 20 minutes at five minutes an hour. And even if you're a marathon runner and you're running for two and a half hours, you're still going to only use up about 3,000 calories, which is um, roughly equivalent to a pound of fat, and not even a pound of fat. So overeating is really easy, uh, it's, and it's hard to work off. Um, so the other things that the food industry did to make it easier for people to eat more um, was to put food in places where nobody ever dreamed food could be before, before or after. And um, I like to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? I can still remember whether it wasn't. This is a picture of Borders. Um, may it rest in peace. <laughs> the coffee shop is still there, but Borders is not. Um, I go around with my cell phone and I take pictures of food. And in drug food, you know, Dwayne Reed has now become a grocery store. And you can buy food at Bed Bath and Beyond and Staples. More, Staples is introducing more and more and more food in it. Uh, if food is available, you will buy it. And the whole reason why food uh, people like me are so upset about vending machines in schools is that the research shows that the more vending machines there are, the more products kids buy out of them. All of these are ways to encourage people to eat more. The, other, the last one I want to talk about is low prices. And it's very, very hard to argue against low prices. And I'm not going to. I'm merely going to point out that if you go to McDonald's with $5, you can buy five hamburgers or one salad. 
What's that about? That's agricultural policy in action. There it is, right in front of you. So if you're poor and hungry and you go to McDonald's, are you going to buy hamburgers or are you going to buy a salad? Guess which? If poor people think that fruits and vegetables are expensive, it's because fruits and vegetables are expensive. Um, the Department of Commerce tracks the index price of various food commodities over time. And this one starts in that key year of 1980 again and shows that since 1980, the index price of fruits and vegetables has gone up by 40%, roughly, whereas the index price of beer, butter, and soaps has gone down by 15 to 30%. So that, again, is agricultural policy in action. We can, we can talk about how that works later on. So all in all, what this looks like is that uh, what with one policy and another, we live in an environment that encourages us to eat more than we need or want. And these are the kinds of things that a lawyer named Michelle Simon wrote about in her quite excellent book called Appetite for Profit, how the food industry undermines our health and how to fight back. Um, and actually, she had in there a section that kind of makes you sympathetic to what food companies have to go through. Because food companies are under enormous pressure from advocates like me who want them to stop marketing to children, to regulators who want to regulate them to pieces, lawyers who want to sue them for making everybody fat, and Wall Street that simply wants them to make more money and faster. And food companies reacted first by doing nothing, then by going through all the stages of death and denial. <laughs> and then they began fighting back. And I'm not going to say much about that, um, but you can go look at my website. I talk about that a lot on my website. And they lobby behind the scenes. They attack advocates. Um, and I'm going to post tomorrow a, a piece about a seven-page single-space letter that I just got from the Sugar Association. Um, they blame inactivity, they blame personal choice, they attack the science. That's the first thing they do. And they try to co-opt people who are critical. Um, and they also have been changing their products like mad in an attempt to try and make their products look healthy. So let me say a few, a few things about that. In 1990, Congress, in its infinite wisdom, passed the Nutrition Labeling Education Act of 1990. And this was the act that put the Nutrition Facts Panel on food packages. Food companies hated the idea that they were going to have to say on the package how much saturated fat, salt, and sugar they had in them. And so they insisted that if they had to say what was bad about their foods, that they also be allowed to say what was good about their foods. Congress agreed, and it forced the FDA to begin allowing health claims on food packages they had never been allowed before. Um, when the FDA turned down requests for claims on food packages, because they didn't have enough scientific substantiation behind them, the companies took the FDA to court. And in 2003, under the Bush administration, um, an associate commissioner at FDA announced that the FDA was going to stop fighting health claims um, cases in court. 
uh, because they had lost to eight out of 10 First Amendment decisions. And doing business the way we were was no longer sustainable. So they were going to roll over and not fight health plans. Now, I don't know about you. There's a big article in today's Times about the First Amendment and the, um, and the FDA. And the, um, it always kind of surprises me. Because I don't know about you, but when I went to high school and learned about the First Amendment or junior high school or whatever it was, um, I learned that the First Amendment was there to protect uh, religious and political speech. It never dawned on me, then or now, that the First Amendment was designed to permit the, to protect the right of food companies to market junk foods to kids. But that is how uh, the courts are interpreting it. The decision today that's discussed in the paper today is that the courts have turned down the FDA's wanting to put those awful photographs on cigarette packages. Um, and that's on, it was turned down on First Amendment grounds. I think we need a rethinking of the First Amendment for this purpose. Uh, but in any case, that's what we have. And it is very, very unlikely to change um, in this administration and with this particular Supreme Court, uh, given the decision in Citizens United. Um, so that's the situation that we're in. And the result of it is cacophony in the supermarket. Um, all food companies have started making what are called functional foods, which are foods that have something added to them over and above what's in the uh, original food on the theory that it's going to be in health. And the most common ones are vitamins and minerals, <clears throat> excuse me, antioxidants, things that lower cholesterol, omega-3s, probiotics, and herbal supplements. <clears throat> what these do without question is to sell food products. And you, that's what that red arrow is, that's sales. Um, and in fact, it's very difficult for a company to sell a food product that doesn't have some kind of health claim on it. And the whole purpose of this is to be able to make claims for the products. So here's my current favorite example, which is Palm um, Wonderful, which advertises itself as a way of um, fixing prostate problems. Um, and I have on this, never mind the science, because there's now study after study after study that shows that antioxidants no, not only are not particularly helpful in preventing heart heart disease, cancer, or other problems, but in some cases they appear to be associated with worse problems. But that doesn't stop the advertisement, because remember, we're in First Amendment territory here. Um, the reason for doing health claims is, as I said, because it sells products. And that's because uh, they establish a health aura. And this has been very nicely shown in a paper by Brian Lansick and his group, uh, in which, and he has other papers that show similar kinds of things, so that any claim on a food product, ranging from organic to reduced fat to no trans fats to vitamin D and immunity, makes people think the product doesn't have any calories. <laughs> it's, it's called a health aura or a health delusion or a health halo. And people just look at the product and it says, buy me, and people do. Uh, now, the food industry backs up this kind of marketing with about $14 billion a year in direct media advertising. That is the kind of advertising that goes through advertising agencies, not other kinds, just that kind. 
And it's very hard to get specific information about individual products, but advertising educationally uh, will reveal a secret or two. And that's how I was able to find out that Kellogg's advertising budget for Pop-Tarts in 2010 was $47.2 million, just for media advertising. And Fruit Loops had a $19.7 million budget. Um, no government agency has anywhere near that kind of money to promote health. Um, I, I want to talk about co-optation co because it's a real problem in the food area, just as it used to be with cigarettes. Um, and so I'll say something about partnerships and alliances. <clears throat> These are program books from what used to be the American Dietetic Association, and now has another name, um, an organization heavily partnered with food companies that I think puts the organization in an uncomfortable position when it needs to advise people to eat less of something, which it doesn't do. Uh, I'm just going to show a bunch of examples. It's hard to know which one is more egregious, but Cadbury Schweppes, a soda company, um, partnered with the American Diabetes Association. Um, the Coca-Cola gave a grant to the American Association of Family Practice to run its, its um, online education campaigns. Uh, you can bet that one of those campaigns was not to drink less soda. And the demonstration that I'm showing there is of physicians in Contra Costa County in California who burned their AAFP cards in protest and, um, and said they weren't going to stay in the organization. But the organization is still doing that. Coca-Cola gave a grant to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for childhood obesity treatment. You can't make this stuff up. The um, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute partners with Coca-Cola. Okay, Diet Coke. Um, but still. Um, and the, these beverage companies spend a lot of money on lobbying, particularly if there's any threat of uh, some city or state or national government passing soda taxes. And this is a graph from the Los Angeles Times, which I don't know where they got these figures, but they showed that the uh, lobbying budgets of Coke, Pepsi, and the American Beverage Association from 2003 to 2008 ran a few million dollars, and then when soda taxes became a threat in 2009, they raised it to $40 million, and they must still be worried about it because PepsiCo just reported that its lobbying budget was $29 million last year. Again, no health agency can compete with that kind of money. PepsiCo is an interesting company. Um, it's, uh, it's just announced that it's going to increase its advertising spending for PepsiCo, its core products, by 500 or $600 million a year, at the same time that it's reducing its workforce by 8,700. Um, and all of these kinds of things caused a colleague at um, a pediatrician at Harvard and I to write an article for the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of years ago asking the question, can the food industry play a constructive role in the obesity epidemic? We were dubious to say the least, because the goals of industry are different than the goals of public health. Industry's goal is to make a profit, public health goal is to make people healthy. Um, maybe these things would be congruent, but they don't usually turn out that way. 
Um, and this might not matter because Americans have a lot of money, but this issue is very, very important in our international relations these days. And there is now an enormous fight in the literature about whether the food industry can play a role in solving problems of malnutrition throughout the world. And there are people who argue yes and people who argue no. Um, so let's take a look at that. Um, one of the things that came as a surprise to me when I started collecting these things was how important profits are coming from developing and emerging economies. Uh, essentially, the growth of, of food products in the United States is static. There's no increase except in proportion to population in the United States, and all of the growth is now coming from overseas. Um, and the companies that are reporting this are companies like Kraft and PepsiCo. PepsiCo's profit nearly doubled on overseas beverages. That was last year. Um, strong Asian sales bolstered Coca-Cola's fourth quarter, and it, it benefited from its international beverage portfolio. Three quarters of the revenue of Coke came from outside North America. Um, and I was in India a couple of years ago, and I was just astounded at the reach of PepsiCo products. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was in places where no tourists go, um, places of just extraordinary dire poverty where um, most American tourists don't go, and we shouldn't have been. But um, there we were, and there were Frito-Lay potato chips and PepsiCo being sold uh, in the most astounding places. They've got fabulous distribution. Um, I was in Panama a couple of years ago, and I don't know what other people do when they go to um, countries, but I always go to grocery stores and buy Kellogg's products. And, and I particularly liked this box of chocolate sweeties because it carried an endorsement from the Pediatric Association of Guatemala. Uh, I don't know why they were doing that, but I don't think they should. Uh, one of the one of the reasons why this is so insidious is the introduction of products into trying to do something about childhood malnutrition. And the, um, this is a, a something, this comes from a, um, a company that makes products for uh, weaning, makes weaning food. And these weaning foods are directed at children that are six months old to two years. And the project at the, in the Ivory Coast is designed to target more than 90% of children who are six months old to 24 months old. That means they're going to be replacing breast milk at least for several months uh, with these products that have costs associated with them. Um, and some environmental considerations as well. There's an enormous international effort called Scaling Up Nutrition that's um, designed to try to do something about malnutrition in third, among children in third world countries. And an important part of its effort is to engage with the business community because the business community can add value to the entire food product chain. chain. Again, focusing on products um, and you see the results of this in countries like China, 
which, as far as I know, has a population that's largely lactose intolerant, or at least somewhat lactose intolerant. And there has been an enormous effort to try to get mothers to stop feed, breastfeeding and feed their kids infant formula, uh, with, in some cases, disastrous results. Um, when those formulas got contaminated. And I was in Ecuador uh, a year or so ago and was amazed to see this sign which looked like it was advertising a weaning food to children who were three years and older. Um, and this is a Nestle product, no relation, um, that is supplemented with omega-3s. And they're convincing people in these very poor countries that if they don't feed their kids these kinds of products, their kids aren't going to be as smart. Um, and I guess the most um, uncomfortable one is this emergency food product, Plumpy Nut, which is pushed by absolutely everybody, Doctors Without Borders. It's proven to be extremely effective in emergency food situations. Uh, as you might expect that it would be because it's 500 calories worth of sweetened peanut butter is basically what it is with vitamins added. And the problem with it is that because it's a product and it's viable and it's not cheap, um, the companies that make it and the groups that are making it are trying to push it on kids that are not in an emergency situations. Um, and of course, what this does is it teaches kids to use products, it teaches kids to like sweet foods, um, and does some other things that are probably not so healthy. Now, I'm not the only person who was concerned about this, <clears throat> and I was surprised to read this very, very long article in the Wall Street Journal um, a little more than a year ago, written by a business professor at Northwestern. Um, and he wrote this very long article, The Case Against Corporate Social Responsibility. He doesn't think that food companies should be trying to address social ills. He says this approach is not only flawed, but it makes it more likely that they and everybody else will be ignoring the real solutions to these problems, which are the kinds of solutions that I talked about at the beginning. Um, it's very, very unlikely in the United States that individuals are going to take this kind of stance. If you can't read it, this woman is saying, I'll pay double for half as much. Um, it's very unlikely that we're going to do that. We're trained to look for the cheapest possible solution to what we're doing. Um, so therefore, it's important if we're going to be dealing with these kinds of environmental issues in the United States, that we take some action, and uh, this is kind of my take action mantra here. Get organized, eat less, eat better, move more, and get political. By get organized, I mean if you want to lose weight, you have to decide you're going to do it, and then get organized to do it. Eating less means smaller portions are the easiest way. Eating better means fruits and vegetables. Moving more is obvious. Getting political means trying to change the political system to make it easier for people to eat more healthfully. And we have a number of things going on, particularly in New York, that are aimed in that direction. When President Obama, who's here in New York tonight, by the way, um, eating at ABC Carpet, whatever, um, the, um, and I, think, I think you can get in on it if it's about $10,000 a ticket. You too, you too can do it. Um, when he signed the Health Care Reform Act in 2010, it had hidden in it a codicil that required menu labeling, calories on menu labels, uh, just like in New York. 
um, everywhere in the country, and the FDA is currently working on the rules for those. Uh, but probably in the next year or so, you'll see this go national. Uh, New York City's interesting because we have a health commissioner who's really interested in public health. Um, that's kind of unusual, actually. And he has, uh, and we have an extremely wealthy mayor who backs him up to the hill. And that's why you see these subway campaigns that are showing how much you have to walk in order to burn off sodas. Um, there's a big anti-soda campaign coming from the health department trying to show that if you eat a lot of sugar, that sugar's going to turn into fat. And I was kind of amazed at City Field to see the guys at City Field wearing calorie buttons on their uh, uniforms. And I talked somebody out of one. It was a real prize. Uh, the, the latest uh, Department of Health campaign is this one in Spanish and English, which you see on the subways kind of controversial because the people who are in, who are posed in them are actors, not real people. But the current campaign is focused on portion size, uh, trying to get people to understand that larger portions have more calories, which, as I already explained, is not intuitively obvious. Um, and if you really want to be serious about politics, you've got to do something about the farm bill. And this is the year to do it. Here, the Congress is holding hearings right now. Uh, Congresswoman in Maine named Shelley Pingree uh, has introduced a bill to try to bring farm policy in line with health policy and actually create an agricultural system that supports public health instead of undermining it. And her bill is well worth supporting. Um, and lots and lots of people and lots of groups are working on trying to get Congress to at least put in some money for fruits and vegetables. And I have a great long list of things I think that are useful to do if you're interested in getting political around these kinds of issues. We're in the middle of what I see as an enormous food movement now that is focused on uh, trying to do something about food in schools and neighborhoods, uh, safety net for the poor, stopping marketing to kids, doing something about food labels, um, and maybe even changing campaign laws to uh, make our, to enable us to elect congressional representatives who represent us and not corporations. And I think we need to do something about Wall Street, and again, I'm not the only one who thinks so. On the agriculture side, there's really a lot that can be done in supporting farmers' markets, uh, food safety, and changing the way we support farmers. Any of these can have a really great benefit and what's terrific about the food movement is a lot of these things are things that one person can do, uh, which is kind of nice, so it really empowers you. That's really what Occupy Big Food is about. And Occupy Big Food, Occupy the Food System, whatever it's called, uh, has joined with the Occupy movement to try to bring attention to the inequities in the food system and bring attention to these issues. And these are the kinds of things I talk about my, in my new book, which is in bookstores, even though the official publication date isn't until next month. So look for it. Thank you very much.